You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This week, we begin the Book of Bamidbar, what we colloquially call the Book of Numbers. Right here, before we get to the many-sided plot and narrative threads of this book, before we note the dramatic change in tone and texture from Sefer Vayikra, from Torah Kohanim, which we just completed, we are confronted by this terminological question of Bamidbar as numbers, something that will soon emerge as metaphysically significant and not mere nomenclature. The fourth book of the Torah begins with the Parsha that shares its name, Bamidbar, literally, in the desert. Its English title, The Book of Numbers, appears to be a translation of Bamidbar's popular designation throughout rabbinic literature, Chumash or Chomesh Hapikudim, which does seem a pretty accurate way to sum up this particular portion, detailing in all its minutia a census taken in the months following the construction of the tabernacle to Mishkan. And if you search for commandments for mitzvot in this book, so abundantly found in both the previous and following books, Sefer Vayikra and Sefer Devarim, we will be sorely disappointed. Nachmanides, in his introduction to Bamidbar, preemptively dashes our hopes, saying that there are almost no mitzvot in Bamidbar that are noheg ledorot, that are relevant for future generations. What then is relevant here to future generations, meaning us? How can the particulars of an ancient census have anything but the most casual, incidental historical value? To answer this question, we need to understand the dual, even competing legacies in the notion of counting numbers of Jews, of this very institution of taking a census in Jewish thought. Bamidbar opens the Lord spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month, in the second year after the, their exodus from the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of the entire assembly of the Israelites, according to their families, according to their father's household, by number of the names, each male according to their head count. From twenty years of age and up, everyone who goes out to the army in Israel, you shall count them according to their legions, you and Aaron. Rashi, the great father of all biblical commentators, notes, Because of Israel's dearness and preciousness before him, before the Lord, he counts them at all times. When they left Egypt, God counted them, and when they fell at the, at the sin of the golden calf, he counted them in order to know how many remained. When he wanted to rest his Shekhinah upon them, he counted them. On the first day of the month of Nisan, the tabernacle was erected, and on the first day of Iyar, he counted them. Now Rashi is homiletically homey, in a very sweet way that the preciousness of the Jewish people prompted God to count to count their numbers. 
But ultimately, what Rashi suggests is rather counterintuitive. How could numbering the children of Israel be a sign of love when the promise to Father Abraham was that they should be as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the sky, beyond number? And in fact, the classical commentators all challenge Rashi's simple approach. Rashbam, the great contextualist and grandson of Rashi, says that very simply, the Torah itself tells you why God wanted them counted. We were preparing the children of Israel to wage war in the coming months and years, to conquer Canaan. They needed to be a fighting force, and you need to know who do you have in your force. Mi umi holchim, who is with you in battle. So Rashbam rejects Rashi's more homiletical or or even theological approach. Ramban as well, Nachmanides, also challenges Rashi and, and wonders aloud, what is the basis of this mitzvah to command them here? What's the basis of the mitzvah to, to take a census of the Jews? And indeed, the rabbis seem sensitive to this very problem, so much so that in two places in the Talmud, in Masechet Brachot and Masechet Yuma, a prohibition, an actual prohibition to count Jews is recorded, even for a Dvar Mitzvah, even for a command, even for a positive act, and a ritual act, and a sacred act. There's a prohibition of taking a census of counting Jews. The rabbis even see the source of a plague which is mentioned in the time of David's monarchy in the second book of Samuel as stemming from this very transgression of taking an improper census of counting Jews. Why this prohibition then of counting in the Talmud? And how do we reconcile this prohibition with the divine command to take a census and take account of the Israelites at the beginning of the book of Bamidbar, at the very beginning of our Parsha? And here we might invoke the words of Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great poet-theologian of the 20th century, who said that counting human beings, quantifying a human being, is a philosophical error. It's a kind of category error. It's like saying, well, if I saw 10 people tonight at the Minion, that would be akin to saying I heard 15 pounds of Beethoven last night at the symphony. That there's a deep sense that numbers, quantification, simply does not go with a human being, simply does not go with an irrepeatable individual, with a sacred person. And indeed, Nachmanides, later in his commentary, when he rejects Rashi, he then comes to try to reconcile Rashi, to try to give some interpretation and justify Rashi, Nachmanis emphasizes that the census was personal and individual, according to their polls. The mispar shemot kol zachar sum. Those words imply the impression on us of the value and sterling, stellar individual worth of each and every soul, which is a unique specimen of divine creativity and a world of its own. It's a microcosm. Every human being is a microcosm of all of reality. And the great philosophical commentator of Yitzhak Arama and his Akedat Yitzhak takes this one step further by calling attention to this same feature 
in the census, but in a more powerful way. He says that the Jews that were counted, they were not just like animals or material objects, but each one had an importance of his own, like a king or a priest, and that indeed God had shown special love towards them. And this is the significance of mentioning each one of them by name and status, for they were all equal and individual in status. Now this week marks the centenary of Carol Wotia, better known to the world as Pope John Paul II. Besides being a Ohev Yisrael, a lover of the Jews, his his memoirs and his his recollections of his high school friend in Poland are very powerful, and his own preaching and theological innovations to improve Jewish-Christian relations are really second to none. But many people don't realize that he was also a philosopher of the first rank, writing important works of philosophy such as The Acting Person, Love and Responsibility, Person and Community, and The Theology of the Body. To mark the Pope's centenary, the Hildebrand Project, a wonderful organization that uh, I've come to know and love over the years, reissued a book called The Personalism of John Paul II. And early in, in John Paul's career, when he was still a parish priest, he wrote to Henry de Lubac, another important 20th century theologian, that I devote my very rare free moments to a work that is close to my heart and is devoted to the metaphysical sense and mystery of the person. And John Paul goes on to say that the evil of our times, and remember the evil that he challenged was both Nazism and Communism, the great leader along with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher that helped bring down the Soviet Union The evil of our times consists in the first place in a kind of degradation, indeed in a pulverization of the fundamental uniqueness of each person. This little book, this little monograph on John Paul's personalism has a chapter entitled Persons Are Unrepeatable. And the heading of this chapter is a person is always more than a mere instance of a type. And what that means in John Crosby, the author's words are that there are, of course, beings that really are nothing more than replaceable instances of a type. Take, for example, the thousands of copies of a book. Each is only an instance of the book. If you lose the copy that you just bought, you can completely recover your loss by getting another copy. You will find everything in the second copy. I would add, you won't find your personal notes, which make it unique and distinctive. But the book itself, you would find it as if you had found and looked in the first copy. And any one copy completely replaces any other copy of a given issue. But John Paul II goes on to say that when we speak of individual animals... Beasts looking upon them simply as single specimens of a particular animal species. And this definition suffices for the animal. But it is not enough to define a man as an individual of the species Homo sapiens. And why not? Because each human being is more than just an instance of the humankind. We do not know a human being as person if we know him only in terms of that which is common to all human beings. 
The term person, John Paul continues, has been coined to signify that a man cannot be wholly contained within the concept individual member of the species, but that there is something more to him, a particular richness and perfection in the manner of his being which can only be brought out by the use of the word person. And I think this is actually the reconciliation of Jewish attitudes towards counting numbers, counting Jews. On the one hand, Jews, as Heschel says, are individual. Human beings are radically unrepeatable. They're never duplicates of another, and therefore to count, to put a number which is just a a number in a series, one like the other, but not qualitatively different, is a category mistake. It's a sheer philosophical error. So we can't truly count the individual qua person from the personalist stance. But as Rabbi Soloveitchik and as John Paul, who both studied the works of Max Scheler, note that there's another dimension to man. Man is not only a personalist being, but he's not only an interior being, but he is also a cosmological being, a being that's part of nature. And as part of nature, as a being that is part of nature, the great chain of being, he can be counted. But we need to make sure that we never reduce the human to that number. We never reduce, we have to have a specific purpose. We have to understand what the cosmological significance, the practical political significance might be. But that is the only time we can truly count a human being, a Jew. We are living through a time similar to the plague that struck David's people. But we too have an obsession with counting. How many new COVID cases? How many deaths? How many visits to the hospital? What is the rate of decrease? And what we can take away from Bamidbar with its emphasis on the dual dynamic, the dual sense is the one that is permitted to see man as part of nature, as as part of a continuity with nature, with the beast, with plants even, Rabbi Salvechik says, but the other side, the interior side, the personal side, so beautifully articulated by John Paul II, that can never be reduced to a number. So in these moments of, of doubt and uncertainty, we need to take some pleasure in knowing that the person is unrepeatable. Your relationship, your, your love, your loyalty, your proximity, your closeness to the presence of another person is magical, is unrepeatable. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 